Like most innovations, it's not the invention that brings about rapid evolution and impact to a market. It's the use case in some aspect of that industry that's so transformative. Like the Ford Motor Company, it's not their vehicles nor their use of a combustible engine that shaped the world. It was their assembly line and making vehicles essentially accessible to the mainstream middle class. Now, what does that have to do with today's interview? I certainly thank you for sticking with me through that. Illumicare didn't invent a competing electronic medical record, but they certainly figured out how to bring value from it. There's not a conversation to be had in the healthcare industry without a mention of EMRs that doesn't bring about a heavy eye roll. Maybe fewer today from a few hospital CIOs, but certainly providers remain nonplussed. That's how Illumicare is making its mark by extracting value from the troves of inputted patient data and making it front and center and helping providers make that data actionable. Today, we talk with GT Laborde, CEO of Illumicare Inc. He discussed some unique data found by their team related to COVID cases across the U.S covering both treatment as well as details around length of stay and other factors. Go ahead and check out Lumacare website while you listen. See how their data is extracted and displayed for providers to help feature key patient info, including things from prescription drug medication costs and comparisons to specific patient length of stay to radiation exposure frequency from imaging. Here we go with GT Laborde. I'm Lance Lunsford, senior partner at Groundswell Health, and thanks for listening to the Connected Hospital Podcast. jumping on the podcast with us today. You know, your team has done uh, a lot of really interesting things over the last several years since Lumicare came into to my perspective. You know, you guys have even grown not only in terms of uh, the number of hospitals that are in your portfolio, but then also um, the, the, the level of services and the insights. Um, but just to break it down, you know, real fast, you know, at the, at the heart of what Illumicare's platform does, you know, how do you describe its value proposition to the, um, the, the, those who might not already understand what is being done to bring value to the bedside uh, in healthcare? Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, we, we do a few things. Firstly, we, we, we put a real cost to every clinical order in real time. So we use the hospital's daily cost, for example, to acquire medicines from their wholesaler. And we take that supply chain cost and we translate it to an actual clinical order written on the floor um, in real time. So for the first time, we can tell a provider, you know, you're writing a prescription for something. This is what it actually costs the hospital uh, to fill that to fill that script um, and do the same thing for lab and radiology tests um, using their own cost accounting data. And the second thing that we do is we sort of attribute every one of those orders to the ordering provider so that we know for every order that costs something, who was the one responsible for ordering it and what type of provider were they? And ultimately, what was the sickness of the patient? What disease category did the patient, um, you know, was the patient in? And from all of that, we can tell who is ordering what on what kinds of patients. And that gives us a view of the, the, the enormous amount of variation in practice patterns and in spending on the same kind of patients by the same kind of providers. Um, and the overall goal of Illumicare is to measure where that variation exists um, and to be able to compress that variation, to be able to 
you know, find those things that add cost with little to no clinical utility. And in fact, often a lot of, a lot of overutilization just creates unnecessary risk for patients. So it's, it's actually, you know, inefficient clinical care is actually bad for the patient. Um, and so our goal is to help providers uh, to take better care of patients by giving them a tool at point of care that's sort of a clinical financial decision support tool, um, and then to marry that up with administrator-facing tools that, are now, that allow them to measure all of these various things from a macro level all the way down to a, to a very minute level for each provider. So, yeah, so on that on that, on that physician side of it, when we talk about that clinical point of view, uh, again, being able to have that real-time access to information um, in the way that you just kind of outlined, um, explain to me kind of what the vision is then for the intervention opportunity that creates and, and what, what will you do with the physician autonomy at that point? You know, I'll give you a great example, a real example um, from a Texas health system. Um, uh, there's a drug on formulae there that's a sleep medicine called Remelteon. And there's some evidence that Remelteon might be, might be better, might be less dementia uh, causing for patients um, who are older, who are, you know, 75, 80 years or older. Um, and but because it's on formulary and there's another, you know, is an equal sleep medicine, um, um, Zolpidem, which is, which is, you know, a generic form of Ambien. And many providers think of them as sort of interchangeable. Well, one is literally 87 times more expensive than the other. And we saw it repetitively used the more expensive one, Remelteon, at the health system. In fact, they spent in patients 60 and younger something like $280,000 a year incrementally on ordering Remelteon in younger patients. Um, but providers, to, you know, to their benefit, have absolutely no idea what these two drugs cost, right? No one as health systems... In fact, I was just reading the AMA ethical guidelines, and you know they're really kind of two-facing. They say providers have a responsibility to be good stewards of of health system resources, because we really owe as physicians a um, you know an obligation to all patients, and that includes access to care and and the resources to treat you know everyone. But health systems also have an ethical obligation to be able to provide their their physicians and and other providers with with information about how thing, how much things cost and, and to help them understand what the financial impact of their decisions are. And look, in a value-based world, cost and price is part of value. And so I don't know how we expect physicians to provide, quote, value-based care and not tell them what anything costs. So well, for yeah, us, it's I sort of fundamental sort of empowerment to the physician to be able to do what it is you want them to do. Yeah, I think that it, it takes a, especially, um, uh, poignant kind of uh, a turn for where we are in this country, that, and we're about to. We're, we're kind of, if you're in a, a hospital at the local level and you've got a competitive congressional race in, in your area, you know we're kind of lucky that 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 healthcare conversation hasn't gotten so hyper local in this presidential election cycle because that cost conversation is definitely coming in healthcare, and so being able to put in the hands of a physician a cost containment. Uh, tactic or a cost sensitive tactic is it seems to be like an, an important thing maybe for legislators and regulators so that we can actually address this not necessarily in um, in across the board cost cutting uh, framed as as cost containment
payment, but instead as, as ways to actually decrease the cost of providing that, that care. Um, but the physician side of it, they may not know that they're doing that. I suppose that the physician themselves are, do you, do you see them taking action on that? Just having the, the access to the information and being able to have that communication with the patient? Well, they do, but it's more than just getting access to the information. So if, you know, permit me a, a, you know, um, an analogy. So if you just sat there and you stared at a stock ticker all day long, you would see the price of things, but it isn't that useful. Um, And so what we do is not, I mean, we certainly show people what things cost, but you have to go past that. And what you have to do is you have to, you have to, for each physician, understand what their practice patterns are and what they tend to overspend on um, relative to their peers. And you have to overlay sort of clinical decision support on top of that because, you you know, there are some things that are more expensive that are appropriate. And so if ever you're going to have sort of a financial component, you have to ensure that you're doing something that's clinically appropriate. You're sort of one of attack things that are kind of overutilization and add little clinical value. And there's, there's a lot of that, believe me, there's millions and millions of dollars of that in every, in every hospital. So, um, you know, the key there is to pick those specific instances where you have overutilization that harms patients or creates unnecessary risk for patients um, that also drives excess cost and, and has very little clinical utility. And if you can teach someone, if you can teach a provider when those opportunities exist, um, right when they're right when they're doing it, like the best time to do that is when they are looking at the medical record for the patient they've ordered that on, it's the perfect time to teach them that. And so you might think of this as like contextual education of those things at the time and place where they can make the best use of that information to change not only the decision they make for that patient, but really their practice going forward, sort of their habit going forward. And that's the way we think about, you know, respecting physicians' autonomy, but trying to use all of the you know analytical tools that we have to empower them to make better value-based, better value-based decisions. Yeah, yeah, I I can see that. Before we go forward anymore, you know, we we covered it a little bit, but talk about what that looks like for the physician, just in a broad overview. We we talked about, um, you know, it, it just basically presents information uh, for the physician to be able to quickly and easily access it. But um, is it in a dashboard form? Kind of describe it the way you guys would would uh, and how it interacts with the EMR. Yeah, so it's an EMR agnostic tool. We call it a ribbon that um, basically floats over the EMR, and we we have a patented methodology that it maintains context. So as a provider logs in to start their day, um, this little tool simply auto-runs in the background. They never have to separately log into it. Um, when they um, when they navigate to a patient on the EMR, it, it's a little toolbar that appears on the screen. It actually minimizes itself down to this little square if you don't interact with it in 15 seconds. Um, but as the provider moves from patient to patient in the EMR, it knows what patient they're currently looking at and um, can either sort of nudge a patient, in, nudge the provider in their workflow. If there's something, if they're one of these opportunities, that's a really important opportunity. We might choose to just nudge that on the screen for eight seconds or so. It doesn't stop their interaction. It doesn't affect their use of the EMR in the background, but it's our way without causing someone to click or interrupt them or prevent them from doing what it is they're trying to do um, to sort of interject that little bit of teaching in their workflow. Um, 
And so, you know, look, my partner and my business partner is a practicing physician. Um, and the rules were don't slow me down. Don't obstruct my workflow, you know, be, be additive without being prescriptive, um, empower me. Don't slow me down. Um, and so everything we've built about the way that we sort of interject these little nuggets, these, these little sort of clinical financial nuggets is designed to be respectful of the physician's you know, workflow um, and non-intrusive, but these nudges do work and we, you know, we measure, it's, it's amazing how effective they are. So I think what you find is that physicians want to make the right decision and they are sensitive to the fact that patients are, you know, have much higher deductibles these days. They have coinsurance, you know, these days there, there's a greater burden on patients, you know, now than ever before. And I think they take you know, they take seriously their responsibility to not run up the bill unnecessarily. Um, and so you just have to give them the information they need to make that decision. And I think, you know, 80% or 90% of physicians will, will make that right decision. If you give them the information they need, you make it readily available and you don't really slow them down or make it a pain, you know, in their workflow. And that's kind of the yeah. way we built what we do. No, I think that yeah, that's a that's a big part of the the value of the the platform. We're going to go into obviously everything that uh, you have experienced with uh, Alumacare in the last uh, seven or eight months with COVID, and so I know we'll be bouncing back and forth a little bit on um, on 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 cost, but I want to talk a little bit about length of stay and the impact just separate to the, the COVID side of it, um, for a physician to, again, have that top of mind awareness around the length of stay for, a, for an individual patient that they're seeing, um, you know, while they're busy providing that care and, and looking, the, the most of it, looking at what they can with how to provide that, that care to that patient, those kinds of stats, um, do, you, do you think that that has been interventional even even just on a and um for for those physicians to see a, a key stat like um you know radiation exposure and length of stay for that individual patient and being able to make better care decisions by having quicker top of mind access to that information and and have y'all been able to see that out you know respective to other areas i mean i think most physicians would say it's mildly interesting. Um, what they're really interested in is some very specific behavior and a, and a literature citation around why we say, look, if your patient has sepsis, you know, you don't have to do a daily BNP. That's not a recommended best practice. It's not what your provider, you know, it's not what your peers do. Um, and those BNPs, you know, they aren't free. Um, and so, and it's not just, you know, another stick of your patient. Um, you know, it's, um, it's lab handling of something that has to be on ice and has to be centrifuged within an hour. I mean, there's all kind of downstream effects from something that just that one little click or that repetitive um, practice, um, you know, you want to sort of jar people away from that. So I think what they find value is insights into how I'm different and and some of those things may be explainable in given their patient population and some are not. And and I think what they find most value in is, you know, tell me where that variation is um, so that I can decide for myself whether my variation really I have a good reason for it or not. And And it starts a great conversation. And at the end of the day, when you get someone thinking that way, 
you've achieved something huge, right? Like it's like, think about going into a restaurant and opening the menu and seeing no prices on the menu and no calorie counts on the menu, right? Like you might order just about anything, right? Like I'll give me the Remy Martin. <laughs> that looks good. Um, but you know, when you open a menu and you see prices and you see calorie counts, those things cause you to be more thoughtful. They cause you, they cause you to be more, you know, more moderate in what you, what you might order. And, and so that's for me, it's, it's really all about kind of finding those individual opportunities to bring value to physicians. And, and there are a number of them. It's not like there are, these are rare, you know, these are rare occurrences. Um, there's lots of variation and, you know, we've been, we've, healthcare's tried for years to sort of attack that variation. And you can, you can only standardize care so much because look, patients, you know, it's not, it's an art, not a science, not, you know, patients don't all re- react the same. You know, physicians aren't taking care of widgets. They're taking care of human beings that all have varying degrees of socioeconomic status and, you know, and, and habits and, um, you know, even their genetic makeup and all kinds of things create um, different um, patient reactions to the things that we, you know, the, the interventions that we do to try to treat their diseases. And so it's not simple, but where you're trying to bring value to physicians is find these opportunities in practice that add very little clinical value that add a necessary cost to both the health system and the patient. And, and they, they appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so that, that brings us to where we've been for the last, uh, since, since March and probably for you guys before that, as you were started monitoring for COVID, but, um, the, the, the Illumicare platform and the data that you've been able to identify has been really valuable. I think, especially in, in retrospect, not to mention the, the real time data that I'm sure that, uh, your, your uh, patients and their providers are depending on, but tell us, just a little bit about um, what 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 you guys have been seeing from use of the platform with respect. I guess let's start with the the biggest thing on your radar when it, with respect to COVID and what the data from your systems have been able to pull out. What has been the biggest thing um, for you guys that you've been able to identify? Well, I guess just to give you some understanding and your listeners some understanding of, you know, if we talk about what we've seen, you probably want to know sort of where that's come from. So, you know, we've pulled together sort of a super data set for across a number of health systems that are geographically dispersed all over the country. Um, you know, at this point, I have, you know, data on you know, over about three or 400,000 um, tests, you know, COVID tests. I know the number and percentages of positivity of those tests and how that's changed over time. Um, really surprisingly, you know, I've seen the percentage of, of patients that are tested by our customer health systems that are positive for COVID. That percentage has steadily grown over time despite the fact that in a given, you know, for a given, like say per month, the number of tests being done has increased massively, right? Our capacity for testing has increased massively, but yet, I mean, even today in the most recent period, like say since August 4, so the last couple of months is the time we're recording this, about 23% of the patients tested by health systems have, are testing positive. And that's way up from, you know, about the 6% kind of in the early days um, of maybe March to May. Um, so it's been fascinating, you know, just to, but we have a pretty good view of a lot of tests. We're, you know, looking at patients that not only tested positive, but have done kind of a deep dive of patients that have been admitted to the hospital um, and understand things about their cost, their length of stay, what DRGs they're falling into, 
um, the cost of treating them and what medications are being used to treat them. So we've got, you know, we've compiled a fair amount of information to understand these COVID patients and be able to help health systems sort of see how that's changing in real time. Yeah. Um, and so what, what would you say um, on, on length of stay, how has that changed over time with respect to those patients who are, uh, uh, are COVID patients? It's definitely getting better. So in the early days, it was about nine days on average length of stay, um, and that's down to about seven days now. So that's a that's a pretty nice compression, and that really speaks to hopefully we're you know we're getting better at at um, at taking care of patients. Where you know all of our our, our intensivists are getting better at um, at managing these cases. We were a little afraid, frankly, going into this, and one might have predicted uh, what might happen to the length of stay of patients that don't have COVID in the hospital and how that might be affected. But really that's kind of held steady um, at about five and a half days in, in our data set. Um, what's really interesting to me is that the patients, of all the patients that have tested positive, um, there's a growing percentage who are admitted to the hospital in, in these various time slices. So that's gone from about 36% in the early days, let's say, to about 48% now of the patients that we see testing positive, they're tested by these health systems, are actually admitted um, as inpatients. Um, not sure why that is, you know, there's some of what I want to do today is just sort of tell you what the data is, and then maybe we could sort of speculate as to what some of the causes are, but, Great. Um, but that's somewhat surprising to me. The um, so and and then the I guess we it's not necessary there it's not as though that there were set DRGs that these patients would have fallen into but it, what have y'all been able to find uh, as DRG was is the most are y'all tracking the most frequently uh, used DRGs or um, what yeah pulled up there? yeah that has been fascinating yeah that's that's been really fascinating because. Um, you know, when you talk about a patient who's COVID positive um, and you say, okay, well, what DRGs do they fall into? The answer is almost every one of them. <laughs> um, I mean, when I ask that question that way, you know, what I find is that they're dispersed across like 800 different DRGs. And so the reality is that there's a, there are a number of people who are in the hospital who are COVID positive, but really, you know, are not in the hospital because of COVID. Um, and so it is fascinating to see, you know, how you just in the general population, you're finding COVID positive patients, but the ones that, you know, are clearly, you know, they're, they're sort of centered in the respiratory and pneumonia, you know, respiratory illness with, with complication and comorbidities, um, like DRG 177 and around there, um, as well as the sepsis DRG. So those are the most, you know, the patients that are in the hospital for COVID generally are falling into, um, some of those cat, you know those are the most predominant DRGs that they fall into. And, and you know, it's fascinating, like the most frequent DRG, 177, um, you know, I looked at the length of stay of patients with COVID and without COVID in that DRG, and they're pretty similar, really. I mean, with COVID, it's about six and a half days, and without COVID, it's about 7.2 days. So, you know, they, I would have thought, well, maybe these COVID patients landing in this DRG are going to be, you know, much worse than a sort of a normal complicated pneumonia case. Um, really, you know, um, patients in that DRG tend to be, you know, fairly homogeneous with other 
sick pneumonia patients. Basically, yeah. they, they're sort of their length of stay and presentation is somewhat similar. So I found that kind of an interesting takeaway. How have you all noticed uh, of those COVID patients, the, the trends related to cough, um, I guess, at the beginning compared to now? And this is where, you know, we, we focus on medication lab and radiology or imaging because those are the things that are sort of physician driven and, you know, they're exercising judgment about what to, about what to order. Um, so supply costs we're not tracking and obviously PPE is a big, you know, is a big expense for health systems and that's not, you know, we don't track that stuff and that's not included because physicians aren't really making decisions about that. But just in the med lab or ad spend, it really has gone down amazingly. So, you know, in the early days, it was about $3,800 per patient in medication lab and radiology, um, you know, spend. And I've held cost constant throughout this whole thing so that we really are, we can sort of measure differences in utilization, not just inflation here and there. But, um, you know, then in the second period, we looked kind of March to July, it was about $2,500. And then in the most recent period since August to, you know, early October, it's about nineteen hundred dollars, so thirty-eight hundred to nineteen hundred. So we really have seen a compression, um, you know, in the cost to treat these patients. Their, their prime, that compression has primarily been in meds and labs. Um, and I think what we saw, you know, early on is physicians, you know, rightly sort of throwing the kitchen sink at something we didn't know that much about. And you know, what it appears from this data is that we're getting, you know, a, a better handle on. Um, the best meds and the best methodologies to treat and, and getting better protocols uh, in place. And, and that has caused, you know, probably less variation and, and a compression around, the, you know, a more reasonable spend. Okay. No, and I, I think um, that's one of the things that's difficult to see when we, we again, in the coverage of it and the public view of things, very difficult to be able to ascertain um, the the boots on the ground kind of insight that you guys can pull together. Um, so in the, the most frequently used medications, as you said, most of what you track is in uh, prescription drug medication and, and uh, some other areas. But um, what does that, what does it look like over time with the change in those medications? So you, you know, again, this is an area that's very, there's a couple of drugs that are top of mind for the, in the public lexicon, but what have y'all been able to see when it comes to treating these patients and the medications most frequently used? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, so to your point, um, we've seen things that you might glean from the popular press, from the popular press, for example, um, hydroxychloroquine, you know, chloroquine has gone from like 28 and a half percent of patients admitted receiving it down to the most recent period of, you know, we, I can't even find anybody. It doesn't even register, you know, in the data. It's so small if anybody's getting it. Um, so that's clearly fallen out of favor. Um, dexamethasone is another one, you know, sort of popularly, you know, you know, you read about, and that has gone from like maybe one and a half percent of patients getting it all the way up to today, 15% of patients getting it, but it's still just 15%, you know, interestingly, um, remdesivir, obviously in the early days, no one got it. Um, today about six and a half percent of patients in the most recent period are getting remdesivir and you know, it's just still six and a half percent. So these two drugs that we think are, you know, many people think are, are certainly in the popular press. These are the two best guns we have, dexamethasone and remdesivir. 
you know, really only are, you know, it's a minority of patients, you know, taking those drugs. Um, there were a couple of things though that I think are, you know, stuck out to me as, you know, as kind of interesting. Um, number one or number two in every time period are anticoagulants. And I think, you know, there's been a lot written about, you know, the clotting factor and, and people in heart conditions and all kinds of issues around clotting with COVID. And, and we see, I mean, it is the most, you know, um, certainly in the earlier periods, even the middle period, it, it is the most frequently used drug, the drug used on the highest percentage of patients. But in the most recent period, we've seen an interesting flip in the most frequent drug used. And now they're ulcer drugs, interestingly enough. So pantoprazole is given to about 27% of patients. Um, and somatidine is, uh, is given to about 25% of patients. And, you know, some of those are head scratchers. Like there's some early data around, um, they both sort of have a different action um, in the way that they work. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting to see these ulcer drugs and you really sort of grasp that like, well, you know, why is that used so frequently? Um, and really, it's just up to speculation. But it's one of those things that we see where like there's some early data, there's sort of this anecdotal kind of epidemiologic data that backward looking patients that are on, you know, um, somatidine is basically pepsid, um, you know, patients that were on that had a better course of care. And, you know, what's the harm in trying an ulcer drug like that? It's relatively cheap. And it's, relatively, you know, has, has low um, side effects and so forth. So let's give it a shot, right? It seems to, it seems to have some association with better outcomes. And that is a fascinating thing about seeing these sort of waves of drugs that kind of come in favor and wane. Um, you know, normally you would think in medicine that we wait to, you know, we wait until we get the, you know, the preeminent, you know, double-blinded, you know, controlled study to tell us that something really works. And but given the speed of this disease and, you know, and its impact, clinicians are really in front of that a lot of times. And you see that with, you know, hydroxychloroquine and you see that with these other drugs kind of come in and out of favor as some anecdotal stories indicate, hey, maybe this does have an effect. And it's like, well, that's a cheap drug. It doesn't have much side effects. Let's try. You know, what's the harm in trying? And so we see we see that kind of come and wane. It is fascinating um, how much sort of ex grand experimentation we're doing with the medications that we're treating with. Um, and that's something that kind of pulls out of the data. Um, and there's some interesting stuff around sort of the cost of medicines and, yeah, and you know, yeah. what we spend money on. So I don't know if you want to get into that too. Yeah, definitely. So I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the, the high and the low end of that, obviously, but in any kind of trends that you've identified there. Yeah, what was fascinating, the, the, you know, when we looked at this data a couple of months ago um, in mid-July, um, the drug that hospitals spent the most money on in COVID patients um, was a drug that, um, it was, it's called tocilizumab, um, and it's an IL-6 inhibitor. It basically is sort of an anti-cytokine storm drug, you know, um, and it was overall the most expensive like the single highest cost driver um, of patients in covid for a medicine but it was only used in four and a half percent of the patients um, so it's just that expensive it's a it's a drug that costs about twenty four hundred dollars per patient that gets it so it's a very expensive drug 
Um, and, and in the most recent period that we looked, that's sort of out of favor, actually. Um, it's become the number nine drug, drug category, basically. So it's really fallen from its overall impact on, on health because it's only being used in 1.1% of patients today. And I think maybe, you know, hospitals maybe got better control of protocols around, you know, around, um, around COVID patients and, and perhaps built the protocol such that, you know, you really needed to call pharmacy or something to get permission to use that drug. I mean, my, my sense, and I don't know, but my guess is that between protocols and hard stops and things, because it's so expensive, um, you know, that was sort of de-emphasized some, and, and we sort of see, you know, it's sort of fallen by 75% of the, you know, in terms of the percentage of patients that, that are getting it. So that was interesting. Um, it's been supplanted. So the drug today in the most recent period that we spend the most amount of money on is vancomycin, um, which to me is also fascinating. So really hasn't been a change in the incidence of patients or the percentage of patients that get vancomycin. Um, you know, it's about, about 15 or 16 percent of patients, like in the earliest period is 22, and then it was 11, and now it's 16. Um, you know, vanc is really probably, it's part of most people's sepsis protocol. So, you know, and, and quite a number of these patients are, are septic. So I can understand, you know, why it's used. And, um, but it is surprising that the that the, that the cost of vancomycin per patient, even holding the cost per dose constant, has gone from $120 to $340 to $734 in the most recent period. Um, so, I mean, the only thing I can surmise there is that there be, it's, yeah, it's gone up even more than that, from 120 to 734 per patient, okay. you know, it, yeah, in whatever, like a five-month period. So, um you know, one can only speculate that we're just giving, it's around the same percentage of patients, right? And so on a per patient basis, it shouldn't be, you know, um, the only thing driving that is we're giving more bank to each patient, you know, and, and perhaps that's a, they're on the protocol longer. Um, you know, there is something about it that is causing it that, you know, that is making it now the, the number one drug that we, uh, that we spend money on. Um, okay. So I thought that was kind of fascinating, interesting as well. And you see that not only in the, the frequency per patient and use, but then also just in the frequency of, of the number of patients, the individuals themselves in both. Well, the percentage of patients that get VANC hasn't really changed a lot. You know, I mean, it's been around 15 or 16%. Um, but even when it was higher, where a greater percentage of patients got it, it was still that that was the time when it was cheapest per patient. Gotcha. Um, so why it now costs so much per patient, we're just using a lot more VANC um, in patients that get it. Um, and that's that's driven the cost up. So it's fascinating. Well, so we, we've seen a lot of uh, – th this is does provide a lot of insight on the, um, the, the, the care that's being provided to patients. Is there anything that your data looks at in regards to the, the mortality rate and not necessarily in, um, the, the, I guess, the total patients that are seen in the mortality rate for COVID, but then also the amount of time that they're in the hospital um, – and and the percentage of those that are that 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 are in that mortality figure. Yeah, I didn't look at mortality for this study, but it's a great it's a great follow up, and maybe we can do a second take a look at that, and um, maybe in these show notes we can we can provide what some of that data. 
we'll put that together. It's good. Well, as as you guys look for, you know, I, I wonder, and when we talk, we've talked a little bit about this before, but obviously the use case of the Illumicare platform in a pandemic, um, in a epide- epidemiological pandemic, is. Um, is is one that you could probably speculate and build a use case for in, when you're kind of formulating the 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 business of Olympicare at the beginning. But did y'all ever have anything um, to to kind of give a test run of how the platform would be used in an event like COVID? Yeah. So. Um... You know, this little tool that appears on the screen, we've talked about cost and cost transparency and, you know, utilization, that kind of thing. But it's actually really just a platform of apps, and it does lots of other things, too, we haven't talked about today and really outside of the scope of our conversation. But, um, you know, one of the things that we did is we built an app for it. (laughs) There's an app for COVID, right? So we built an app that made it easy to do announcements, and it's basically like a Twitter feed that administrators at the hospital um, can send a message and every one of their clinical users can have access to that message immediately. And it also, you know, captures who's seen the message, who's opened it and who read it so that administrators who created the message. And so as PPE supplies changed, as, you know, drugs went on, you know, as remdesivir supplies ran down, you know, whenever there were kind of these broad kinds of announcements, the hardest thing when, you know, you get into something like an emergent situation like this that affects so many people is just communicating. It's just getting everybody on the same page. And, you know, at a time when everybody's full, you know, is all PP'd up, it's hard to pull out your phone and read all your emails and all that. So having a very easy way on the screen to communicate with people in their workflow was something easy. We created that app and just gave it away to, to, you know, to our customers, anybody that wants it about, about 75% of our customers implemented it um, and use it. So, you know, I think it's responsibility for all of us in healthcare IT, if we can, when something like this happens, everyone sort of pulls up their sleeves and says, you know, what can we do to help? And it's our, it's our, it's our honor and privilege to be able to help the people who are on the front lines, you know, taking care of patients and, you know, we can do our little part um, and making their jobs a little bit easier, a little bit, you know, um, more effective and let's do it. And so that was our approach. Well, and because of that, and I think you guys have been around for, for several years now, you're no longer, uh, kind of a, a just little idea startup. Um, what has the growth been like just in the last couple of years, um, for, for you guys as, as bigger and bigger hospital names adopt you and, and bring you into their operation? Yeah, it's been phenomenal. So we've, you know, we've grown um, more than triple digits every year. Um, And, um, you know, we're now in about 215 different healthcare facilities uh, around the country um, with lots of, you know, lots of people sort of signing on to that. Um, Just closed another deal yesterday for a larger health system. So, um, you know, value-based care isn't going away. Um, We, we have to care about patients when we care for patients. And um, so, you know, you just can't, we just can't order and order and order. We have to be mindful um, of the resources and and we have to support physicians. If we, again, if we ask them to play that role, we have to do our part by making that data available and teaching them and and doing it in a, you know, in a way that isn't disruptive to their workflow. Um, So it's an idea that I think whose time is, you know, it's time has come. And we're just honored to be able to help health systems to sort of meet their obligation to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, I think it's one of those huge areas that's missed in the public sphere and the public conversation around healthcare. Um, we talk uh, a lot here on on my team at, at Groundswell and uh, about the fact that the public really doesn't have a full understanding because we've had this really terrible conversation in America for the last 10 years around what healthcare needs. And it's a, it's usually a conversation that devolves to this binary discussion around being for or against the ACA. And it's unfortunate because in all of that, you miss these really great innovations that are founded by people like your team and your company, but then also being uh, intertwined with what hospitals are doing to, um, to, to drive more efficient systems, to reduce readmissions, to uh, bring value-based care to the table. And so these are the kinds of things that, that we, are, we get really excited about when we see that the, the marketplace is, is doing what it can to provide better care and do so cost-effectively. What do you guys see as the next, um, the next move for Illumicare and what do you see down the road? Uh, obviously, besides more and more hospital systems having the platform as part of their integrated operations. Yeah, we're going to do a lot more of that, but we're building out additional apps to do other things. So our customers are asking for all kinds of things like um, insight into supply cost and surgery and um, and management of physician preference, um, you know, items. They're asking for, um, you know, clinical trial matching. How, how do we make it easier for providers at point of care to know that a patient is a great match for a clinical trial here and to be able to give them sort of a one button, you know, one click referral to the trial coordinator um, and just make that so much easier, something that's super manual today and, um, and very inefficient, try and make that much more efficient for both sides of the coordinator and, and the provider. So, I mean, those are just a couple of examples. There are a number of them or places that once you have the ability to interject um, analytics and helpful things in workflow, in physician workflow, in sort of a non-intrusive way, um, there are a lot of use cases for that. And um, the ribbon today gives the user the power to say, just like on your phone, you get to choose what, you know, what apps you have on your phone and which ones can sort of bubble notifications and so forth. Um, that's how our platform works. So um, our goal is to, is to make more and more of this functionality available so that we can, you know, we can support um, providers who, who really know, you know, best what needs to happen clinically. And we just need to surround them with the information about, you know, lots of, you know, different aspects of that treatment decision so they can make the best decision for, for the patient. Well, it's, it's an exciting, um, you guys are an exciting development. It's an exciting time for healthcare and technology. We've gotten through that really kind of rough stage there from the early 2000s to, you know, the early 2010s when a lot of people were trying to take what they knew in technology and apply it to healthcare when in fact what we needed is a little bit of what you guys did, which was take the healthcare side to the technology. And, and so it feels like there's a lot more disruption and a lot better uh, activity going on with uh, innovations like yours at the table. So we look forward to having a follow-up discussion again, talking a little bit about COVID and maybe talking about hopefully hopefully less about COVID and more about improving care and outcomes in the future on other uh, other areas in the industry. Obviously, it's, there's other areas of healthcare that are going to be uh, at the forefront, but uh, I appreciate your time to go over what Illumicare is doing today. Wonderful to speak with you, Lance. Thank you.